Good morning. Like Ryan said, my name is Travis Smith. We've been part of WCC here for almost three years. Be three years, uh, January 1. And like Ryan said, I graduated from the Pastors and Leaders Institute at uh, Mountain View Community Church, which is our sister church in Fort Collins. We had moved to Windsor, and I was finishing up PLI. We were still commuting, and I decided, after what I'd learned, you know, all ministry is local. I should uh, plug in at WCC, our, our sister church, and find ways to serve there. So that's why we're here, and it's been a pleasure worshiping with you all. I'm grateful for the privilege also to uh, come and share God's word with you this morning. I'm grateful to Dan and John and Jake for that opportunity. Before we begin, let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you for the word made flesh, our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning as we reflect on this psalm that you would open our hearts and our minds. The Holy Spirit would work to give us understanding that we might rightly understand your word. Uh, more importantly, Lord, that we would be doers of it. I pray also that your spirit would wield it, the two-edged sword upon our hearts, that we might be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And our hope, Lord, is also that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. So bless our time, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You might be surprised to hear that I actually have many Disney princess songs known by heart. And it's not because I moonlight on the weekends with karaoke joints in town. I'm the father of a three-year-old, and she loves uh, this music. My daughter Sophia uh, will tell us to, quote-unquote, turn it higher, and she'll want to dance to these half, same half-dozen songs over and over again. So they've been written on my heart. It seems like we get that request almost daily, and uh, that repetition has, like I said, written them on my heart. Now, Sophia, like a lot of children her age, can be very strong-willed and determined. My wife, Brittany, and I, have uh, we've been amazed at how determined she can be. Uh, when she really wants something, she won't relent easily. We have to remind one another, after particularly difficult episodes, that her strong will is going to serve her in later life. That's our consolation. And when we find ourselves at odds with Sophia, as most parents know, the challenge is to discipline her for her good and not out of anger. That command to honor your father and mother is the first commandment God gives us with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Like all parents, we want it to go well with our girls. We want them to know the joy of obedience, first to their parents, but also to God. Now, just the other day, Sophia was in the midst of a particularly difficult tantrum. She was upstairs with Brittany, my wife, and I was on the main floor, and I was just eavesdropping, quite frankly. And after a lot of debating and crying, Sophia showed no signs of relenting. So, wise guy that I am, I decided to put on her favorite Disney hits playlist, thinking it would cheer her up or get her mind off whatever had provoked her to anger. Unfortunately... Instead of diffusing the situation and provoking joy, like I thought it might, her favorite music escalated and amplified her anger, like pouring baking soda on vinegar. And it was a vivid picture for me, because in that moment, I realized Sophia was hardening her heart in order to continue in her disobedience. She closed her ears and her heart to what normally brought her joy so that she could persist in her disobedience. 
Now, it's easy to chalk this up as simply the behavior of an impetuous child, but as we'll see in our psalm, this tendency to harden our hearts is not something we grow out of, and it is, in fact, very dangerous. Our psalm, Psalm 95, represents a psalm of reorientation. Throughout church history, it has been used as a liturgical invitation to worship in, in worship services. However, it's also unique, as we uh, just heard it read, in that it concludes almost abruptly and strangely with a very dire warning, solemn, remi solemn reminder of the dangers of hardening our hearts. So there are two things in this psalm that I want to explore today. The first is the importance of an invitation to worship and the corporate nature of our worship. And the second is the danger of hardening our hearts and the dire consequences of disobedience. So if you look at Psalm 95, you'll notice in the first six verses, the invitation to come and worship is repeated many times. In fact, in this psalm, there are seven total calls to worship God in one manner or another. One way this psalm was traditionally used was when Pilgrims were traveling to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. They would recite this as they approached the temple. And this, I think, is it's actually really fascinating to, to imagine this. You can picture the pilgrims outside, approaching the temple gates, all congregated together, and calling out the first verse together in unison. They would read, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. They would say that together to invite one to worship. Then the pilgrims would pass through the temple gates into what was called the court of the Gentiles. That was the outermost court of the temple. And there Gentiles were even allowed to enter and witness this. And there in the court of the Gentiles, they would stop again and recite verse 2 in unison, which reads, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Then a liturgist or a priest would recite verse 3 through 5 which exalt the character of God and establish the reasons we must worship. And after that, they would proceed into the next section of the temple, what was known as the Court of, the, uh, I'm sorry, the court of Israel. And that was where uh, Gentiles were forbidden to go, reserved only for Israelites. And there they would recite verse 6, which reads, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. You'll notice this last invitation they recite is one of reverence. Instead of encouraging one another to sing and make a joyful noise, the call is to bow down, to kneel before the Lord. These pilgrims invite one another to worship God and to do so with greater and greater reverence as they draw nearer to God's presence. And this uh, progression, I think, is actually really easy for us to imagine here at WCC. Maybe, uh, you know, at our next service, we'll meet out in the parking lot recite verse 1 together. We'll come in the doors, that narthex area, recite verse 2. Dan could stand up and read verses 3 through 5, and then we'll proceed into the sanctuary here to conclude with verse 6. I was going to make you guys do that. I told the earlier services, but we'll have to talk to Dan about that. And again, I don't necessarily think that uh, application for us is that sort of exact mimicry of the progression of Israelites every Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Instead, I think I could offer this encouragement to us. As we gather uh, together for worship on Sunday morning, come ready to sing along. You'll notice that every invitation to worship in this psalm is a corporate one. Let us sing, let us make a joyful noise, let us come, and so forth. 
And you'll remember this is traditionally used in corporate manner in the church's order of service. We are meant to invite one another to worship God. You're not on this pilgrimage alone. Along with the worship of God, we are here for mutual, mutual edification. And now this being my third service, I am encouraged because I think we do this well. And even the songs we sing, uh, like the ones this morning, they contain similar invitations to worship, like Psalm 95. But when you sing along, you're inviting one another to worship God. Your fellow pilgrims need to hear you exhort them, and you need to hear their exhortation. It doesn't matter if you can't harmonize or sing in tune. I know I can't do that very well. But that's not the reason we sing. We sing to worship the Lord and to build one another up. And I would just say, well done. Even listening in at each service, taking a moment to listen, we all do a great job of inviting one another. And that's important. We need to hear and know that we are invited. God. Part of what is also inviting us to worship is reflecting upon who God is, and that's articulated throughout this psalm. I really want us to notice two recurring themes in this psalm. The first is the reference to God as a rock, or the rock of our salvation, you might notice in verse 1. This theme is also uh, in verse 8, although it's veiled. Uh, in that verse, the psalmist refers to Massah and Meribah, which is one account from Exodus 17, where the people grumble against Moses and against the Lord because they were thirsty. We'll look at this in more detail in a little bit. But you might remember uh, that Moses struck the rock as the Lord commanded him uh, for the sake of the Israelites because they were thirsty. And the Lord made water come forth from the rock to quench their thirst. Now this is clearly a type of a rock of salvation. The people were thirsty. The Lord provided for their thirst by miraculously making water come forth from the rock. There's no doubt that the psalmist uh, who, who wrote Psalm 95 would have had this imagery in mind when he composed uh, our psalm that we're reflecting on today. It is clearly a represent, uh, this representation is clearly one of God as Savior, and it is definitely a reason we are called to worship him. Now, as 21st century, century Christians, this side of the cross of Christ, when we read this psalm and are invited to worship, we can clearly think of Jesus Christ. He is the true and better rock of our salvation. His side was struck, and water and blood came forth to save us. And more than that, our salvation is a true and better salvation. It does not fade, perish. So let that provoke and bolster your worship of God as we reflect on this psalm. Another important theme that can bolster our worship of God are the references to God's hands. You can find these in verses 3 through 7. It's referenced three times. The first two references are in verses 4 and 5, and they're used to describe comprehensively the height and the depth, the breadth and the length of God's control and his care. So look at verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. God reigns over the heights of the mountains as well as the depths of the earth. In these verses, the psalmist covers the vertical plane of God's sovereign control, everything from the lowest depths to the highest heights. In verse 5, we see God's reign extend across the sea as well as the dry land. This is that horizontal plane of God's sovereign control. 
So the psalmist uses these extremes, this juxtaposition of height and depth, breadth and length, to convey the absolute, comprehensive, and total sovereignty of God. He holds all of this in his hands. This is the God we're invited to come and worship. It hearkens to David's words in Psalm 139 when David asks rhetorically, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your hand shall hold me. The last reference to God's hand is in verse 7. And here you'll notice a contrast. Uh, He's no longer referred to as the Lord or the God, but he is our Lord. So look at verse 7. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Not only is he the one true Lord that holds all things in his hands, but he is our Lord, and he holds us also tenderly like a sheep of his pasture in his hand. You might remember the children's song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hand. Very accurate. This is the God we're invited to come and worship. I think as we contemplate God and this invitation to come and worship Him, the notion of coming flippantly or cavalier seems absurd. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, that's the posture of our hearts too often when we come to worship God and to hear His Word and to sing. The cares of the world crowd in upon us and jostle out the contemplation of God, and that posture of worship all too easily goes with it. When we lose that, we lose our joy, our thanksgiving, and our reverence we're invited to to bring with us. Unfortunately, this danger is not one we can simply overcome by sheer force of will. The things that crowd out our opportunities to meditate upon God are often things we cannot simply eradicate Uh, And many times we shouldn't even try. For example, and forgive me if this is TMI, but my youngest daughter, who's almost a year old, uh, her car seat has been working like something of a laxative whenever she spends more than a few minutes in there. So typically on our drive to church, we can hear her working on something in the back seat, which normally means our order of service begins with finding a place to change a poopy diaper. And as spiritual and pious as I'd like to think that I am, that doesn't normally lead me to lofty contemplation of God's character. So when it comes to application, I would encourage us, church family, not to underestimate the power of repetition. I know the stodgy liturgical worship services many of us might have grown up with may not appeal to us a lot today. They may cause you to think of some sort of rote, dead orthodoxy that is quote-unquote not authentic. Nonetheless, we are habitual creatures, whether we like it or not. Most of our behavior is not conscious, but subconscious. For example, uh, I grew up going to a Lutheran church. They had a very liturgical worship service. And frankly, I can hardly remember a single sermon I ever heard there. I don't remember hearing the gospel. But do you know what I do remember, what I have memorized, in fact? The Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. So the congregation would recite both of them uh, at every service. Normally, I wouldn't even look up from what I, was, uh, what I had found to distract myself. 
The congregation would simply recite these important truths in my hearing, and now decades later they are still written on my heart. So even at our best, it's far too easy to approach the worship of God in a cavalier way. We must develop habits of worship, and that, more often than not, means plodding along, repeating the same truths to our hearts and minds. <clears throat> if we do that, church family, if we devote ourselves to that, worship can become a habit. So don't underestimate the power of repetition. Now the danger of cavalier worship is what the psalmist takes up in the second half of Psalm 95. Again, there's this kind of abrupt change that we see halfway. And that brings us to the second major point I want to explore today, which is the danger of hardening our hearts and the dire consequences of our disobedience. So look at verse 7 through 11 with me, and actually the end of verse 7 is where we'll begin. It reads, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The psalmist's use of today is meant to stress the imminence of this exhortation. Remember, the context in which the psalm was traditionally used as an invitation to worship was when pilgrims were traveling uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. They were coming for the express purpose of hearing from God and worshiping him. You can picture them hearing this warning as they stand before the inner sanctum of the temple. They've made it this far, and yet somehow they are still not in the clear. There is still the possibility that they will let their hearts be hardened. In church family, the same is true for us today as we come to worship. We must heed this warning too. The psalmist goes on to reference two separate events that together illustrate the dire consequences of hardening our heart. The first is that reference to Meribah and Massah, which again, that represents a single event from Israel's history, which is recounted in Exodus 17. For the sake of, sake of time, I'll paraphrase it. You might remember as Israel is wandering in the wilderness, they've left Egypt, they begin to grumble at Moses and doubt God's faithfulness in the face of their thirst. Context is uh, important, as always, here. Chad last week reminded us in preaching through Psalm 77 that God parted the Red Sea just three chapters prior to this in Exodus 14. I don't know exactly the span of time that that, that was, but nonetheless, it was fairly recent. So this same generation witnessed God's display of awesome power against Egypt, leading them out of slavery. He brought the great plagues upon Egypt, which they witnessed, he led them across the Red Sea on dry land. He was with them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. There was no lack of evidence concerning the Lord's care for them to this point. Nonetheless, their thirst provokes them to grumble and to test the Lord and to doubt his faithfulness to them. As you might see in your footnotes of your Bible, uh, Massah means testing and Meribah means quarreling. So Moses, and then our psalmist takes this up as well, actually marks that place and that event as a monument to the waywardness of this generation. The psalmist goes on to describe their behavior and its dire consequences in verse 8 through 10. They harden their heart, they test God, they put him to the proof, they doubt God, even though they had seen his works. And because of their quarreling and testing and grumbling, 
uh, God makes this pronouncement against them in verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Again, the fearful thing is, church family, that we have seen greater works than these in the incarnation and in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's very, very important that we do not follow suit. The second allusion that the psalmist makes is a veiled one in verse 11. That reads, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. That event at Massah and Meribah in Exodus 17 is not the occasion where this judgment is dispensed. This condemnation, that they shall not enter my rest, is levied on a separate occasion. Nonetheless, it involves the same generation of Israel. And that event uh, referred to here is at Kadesh, which is recounted in Numbers chapter 14. Again, for the sake of time, I'll just read, uh, I'll paraphrase that we don't have to read the entire story. But as you might remember, the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness and they're at the precipice of the promised land. So they send out spies who are commanded to bring back a report. The spies come back and report that it is indeed a glorious land, but it's inhabited by a strong people who will not leave easily. And for fear of these people, the spies recommend that they do not try to conquer the land, even though God had promised it to them. In short, the spies bring a bad report. And the people of Israel again grumble and contend with God and Moses, provoking this condemnation. Initially, God actually intends to exterminate the entire nation of Israel and start again with Moses as the patriarch. But Moses intercedes for the people and God relents, bringing instead the condemnation in our time. So Numbers 14, verse 20 reads, Truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. This generation was so persistent in its grumbling and unbelief that God forbade them to enter into rest. They hardened their hearts, and they all fell in the wilderness, remaining as sojourners to their last day. They may not have gotten the death penalty, but they did get life without parole. So among other things, this is a dire warning, it's the same fate that awaits those who are hardened in their unbelief even today. For anyone that forsakes the free grace of God in Christ and the free invitation of the gospel and do not trust in Christ shall not enter into rest, but die and die eternally. As Christians who are in Christ, we too are susceptible to the hardening of our hearts, like that generation that fell in the wilderness. We must be watchful and repentant. The potential to harden our hearts is nearer than we may realize, and I want to look today at two eminent forces that uh, serve to harden our hearts. These are not necessarily comprehensive, but I think they are particularly prominent and they are present in our passage today. Those two forces are the deceitfulness of sin, and grumbling. So first, we'll look at the deceitfulness of sin. This is, I fear, an often overlooked quality of sin. Sin of any kind is deceptive. It deceives us. Psalm 95 is actually quoted at length in Hebrews 3, and the author makes mention of this quality of sin, so turn there with me, and we'll look at it quickly. I have the passage in my notes, so I'm 
need to remind myself to give you enough time to actually turn there. So there in Hebrews chapter 3, the author actually quotes Psalm 95 at length in verses 7 through 11, then follows it with this exhortation from verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I wish we had more time to explore this passage. It's clear the author of Hebrews had our psalm in mind when uh, making this argument. But in making the argument, he does mention in verses 12 to 13 the deceitfulness of sin and its central role in causing a hardening of the heart. Now, the hardening of our heart is metaphorical. It's not referring to an actual, actual hardening of the organ in our chest, like perhaps the hardening of our arteries that comes from eating too much fast food. That's not the prohibition here. The, analog or, I'm sorry, the, uh, the analogy is with the idea of callousness. When you form a callus on your finger, for example, the skin becomes hardened and more impervious, more resilient and protective. In this case, the deceitfulness of sin has that same effect upon our hearts. And biblically speaking, our heart is the seat of our affections and our loves. Sin causes our hearts to become callous and impervious to the work of the Spirit. It becomes more resilient to the two-edged sword of God's Word. Now, before we go any farther, it's important that we understand very clearly what is commonly known as the doctrine of the preservation of the saints or the doctrine of our assurance. This has been the commonly held teaching of the church throughout church history. It's true, beloved, that we cannot lose our salvation. And those of us in Christ will be kept until the day of Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You did nothing to earn your salvation in the first place. There is now nothing you can do to forfeit it. You are the Lord's, and uh, he will keep you. But clearly, our assurance is not a cheap assurance. We are not commanded to set it and forget it. We mustn't take it for granted. Instead, we are commanded to test ourselves and to remain watchful. As the author of Hebrews makes clear, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So we can rest assured, we can be watchful, and, it, and we can have confidence that we are in Christ and we will remain there. But I want you to understand this, church family, sin lies to you. And those that are in Christ are not immune to sin's deceitfulness. Sin will promise so much, deliver so little, while taking so much from us. Instead of leaving us satisfied and fulfilling us as we think it might do, we only crave it more, and simultaneously we're left with nothing but shame and guilt. Sin is deceptive. If it wasn't, we would see it for what it was and spurn it more easily. Therefore, when we succumb to sin's temptation, we must recognize its deceitfulness. Recognize how sin deceives you. And when you do, do not harden your heart and return to your sin like the dog to its vomit. Recognize its deceitfulness and be on guard so that it will not drag you away and entice you. In doing so, you will guard your heart against that hardening effect. 
I know Stephen has made this observation before. When preaching a text, it's as if God is happy to give you an object lesson to learn from. As I've reflected on hard-heartedness and grumbling, I've re- I realized how susceptible I am to it. For me, it's normally petty things and inconveniences that provoke me to grumble. Bad drivers I encounter on the road, something triggering a pet peeve, something that should be easy and simple but isn't, a lot harder than it should be. And then I find myself brooding, dwelling over and over again on some frustration that I have. And I can tell you that I have never once lost an argument to my imaginary opponents that I debate in my head. But that's indicative of just how callous our hearts can be. In those moments, I literally cannot imagine how I could be wrong. And obviously, that's very dangerous. So do you ever avoid something you know you should do? Something you're commanded to do? Something good? Do you brood like me? Do you find it hard to let things go? Do you have a short fuse instead of forgiving and seeking forgiveness? If so, you are contending with God. You're hardening your heart. As a result, you might discover that you lack joy. Maybe God feels distant. Perhaps your relationships are stale. Perhaps your zeal for ministering to others has dried up. Maybe you have no appetite for reading God's word or prayer. Perhaps you don't care for the fellowship of the saints. These are all, I think, just some symptoms of a hard heart. But we must repent, beloved. God will not cast you out. We can turn to him. He has the ability to soften your heart. He has done it already before. Be watchful. Do not let sin deceive you. Do not harden your heart again. Muster the courage to do what you know you should instead of finding a way out of it. That may mean doing something difficult or uncomfortable, like confessing your sin or letting go of your bitterness. It might mean telling your coworker or your neighbor about the God you serve, even if it's awkward. I think in that place of obedience and surrender, you'll find comfort and solace and the joy of obedience. Because God is happy to meet you there. The other temptation that hardens our hearts is grumbling. And frankly, grumbling has a hardening effect on us for the same reasons uh, we already covered, because grumbling is also deceitful. However, I think it's worth addressing further in more detail, because I fear we can often treat grumbling like one of those respectable sins. So the question is, what is grumbling? First, I think the word itself is helpful, because the word is an onomatopoeia, which, if you need an English class refresher, is a figure of speech that evokes the actual sound of the thing it refers to. So when you clench your jaw, mutter under your breath about something frustrating, you're grumbling. It's obviously on display in our psalm today in the event that psalm references. The Israelites were grumbling against God and Moses because they were thirsty or hungry or tired. So grumbling is obviously complaining, giving voice to our doubts about the goodness of God. But before you think you're in the clear, like, oh, I don't grumble audibly very often, so I'm good. It's also possible to grumble inaudibly and inwardly. So, for example, Peter commands us in 1 Peter 4, 9 to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So the idea that you might invite someone into your home and share a meal with them, show hospitality, while all the while audibly complaining about it, is probably unlikely, hopefully unlikely. 
On the other hand, it is perhaps very likely that you might grumble inwardly at the inconvenience that hospitality might render to us. Grumbling begins as a posture of our hearts, and it can proceed to an audible complaining and contentiousness. And it's true, we are definitely prone to grumble about petty things and small inconveniences like me, but we are also liable to grumble about more difficult and trying things too. Just look at this generation of the Israelites. They were basically on a 40-year backpacking trip. They were often famished and in danger. They were exiles and refugees. They were not complaining about petty things. But therein is the deceitfulness of grumbling. In this case, it accomplished so little. Nothing, in fact. But it did destroy that generation's fellowship with God. Chad's sermon last week, again, was really helpful uh, in the way that Chad painted the picture of lament and its antidote. I think grumbling can be provoked by the same things that provoke genuine biblical lament. But like Chad said, instead of trusting ourselves to God and turning to him, looking for our defense, we grumble inwardly or outwardly and build our own defense, never looking to God. We are blinded by our own sense of entitlement for justice. We must beware this sort of grumbling, church family. It is more dangerous than we can imagine. In that moment, we are tempted to give ourselves to it. In his masterpiece of allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan paints a vivid picture of this danger. So in that story, the main character, who's named Christian, comes upon the house of a man called Interpreter, where he's shown many things before he departs on his pilgrimage in earnest. The interpreter leads Christian into a room of the house where a man sits in an iron cage. The man in the cage is downcast and in despair. The Christian asks the man, what are you? To which the man responds, I once professed to be a Christian, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, set for the celestial city and had then even joy at the thought that I should get there. Then Christian asks, but what are you now? To which the man in the cage responds, I am now a man of despair, and am shut up in it, as in this iron cage I cannot get out. Oh, how I cannot. But how came you to be in this condition, Christian asks. The man responds, I stopped watching and being sober. I allowed my lust to control me. I sinned against the light of the world and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit, and he is gone. I tempted the devil, and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger, and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. So interpreter chimes in and asks, Is there no hope that you must be kept in this iron cage of despair? To which the man responds, No, none at all. This man in the iron cage represents the danger of a hard heart. It leads only to despair. The hard-hearted person is making the effort to spurn God and be about the business of his own defense and rescue. The hard-hearted person has cast aside the promises of God and is attempting to take matters into his own hands. Beloved, this leads only to despair. Now, one observer noted that interpreter never actually confirms that this man in the iron cage actually has no hope. It is only the man himself in the cage who condemns himself and declares his case hopeless. Again, church family, if you are in Christ, there is no hardness of heart that can remove you from the love of the Father. But 
can rob you of your joy, your hope, and your intimacy with God. The truth is that there is no hardness of heart whatsoever that God cannot penetrate. His power alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. For those of you that are in Christ, he has melted your heart of stone. Do not, beloved, harden your heart again. Look to Christ and fix your eyes upon him, and be watchful so that you do not succumb to the deceitfulness of sin, nor harden your hearts again when you do. And if you're here today, and you have not repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, first, I appreciate that you're here, we're grateful that you're here, and I admire your willingness to come and participate in our worship service. But I want you to understand that at the end of your hard-heartedness is only despair. Whatever ultimate satisfaction or fulfillment you are pursuing, it will fail you. Whatever it is, it cannot satisfy or fulfill you. It has deceived you. You can take nothing with you. Whatever it is, it's going to run out. So I implore you, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look to the one that has gathered all your sins to himself and carried them away in his death. Repent and believe in him, cling to him by faith, and you will be raised in newness of life with him. Jesus can melt the heart of stone. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you invite us to come and worship you. Thank you that we can come freely and confidently because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we can come in his name and find grace to help in our time of need. Thank you that your heart is for sinners and that we can turn to you and believe in you and be raised to newness of life. Father, I pray that we would be on guard, we would be watchful and sober against the hardening of our hearts, that we might uh, not lose our joy, our reverence, hope, and our intimacy with you. But help us, Lord, to have courage to have soft hearts to what you call us to do, to listen, to obey, and to know the joy of obedience. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us, and in that, conform us to the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.